Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I'm your host, Ali Milani, and we are rapidly approaching the end of the year. 2023 has flown by, uh, and we've got another brilliant episode uh, for you. Um, and this week, uh, we're going to be joined uh, by uh, a number of guests, uh, including Jonathan uh, Porters from King's College London, Zach Polensky, Deputy Leader of the Green Party, and Harrison Griffiths, Communications Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. But before we get into uh, some of the nitty-gritty uh, of what's going on, um, I want to start uh, by really sending condolences out to Alistair Darling, former ch- Chancellor um, uh, and Labour Party uh, MP and um, a, a serious voice within the Labour Party who who tragically has, has died today or we've been told he's passed away uh, today and uh, you will have heard um, some of the guests who've been on this show um, on the media this week uh, talking uh, about Alistair Darling and uh, the role he played um, particularly in the Gordon Brown uh, government uh, in 2007 uh, following the economic crash uh, Michael Crick has been speaking about him. Gordon Brown himself has been speaking uh, about him. So we want to send our condolences um, to everyone who knew him, his friends, his family. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, you'll hear a lot about uh, what he was like um, and from everything we've heard. He was um, he was not only uh, an important figure in the Labour Party, but uh, was also an important figure in, in many people's personal journeys and personal lives. So our condolences out to um, to him. Uh, also, I think we've heard, I, I heard news that Henry Kissinger has also uh, died as well. So that's obviously hugely, um, huge news in, in the political scene as well. <clears throat> uh, so that being said, uh, we're going to go straight into the program this week. We've uh, we've got a really, really important um, topics that we want to discuss. Um, and, you know, a week is a long time in politics. And since we last joined you um a lot of things uh, have happened and a lot of things to discuss and that is why we go straight into the week unwrapped uh, and this is the segment where we talk about some of the big political news um that has happened over the last seven days since our last show uh, and this week we have harrison griffiths communication officer at the institute of economic affairs joining us uh, harrison can you hear me okay i can indeed Thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're going to start um, with Rishi Sunak um, and the story uh, that that really dominated PMQs, and that was his cancellation of the meeting uh, that was scheduled between the Prime Minister and the Greek Prime Minister after it was felt a promise to not publicly discuss the Parthenon sculptures was broken, uh, according to Downing Street. Um, Kyrakos Mitsotakis, if I've not butchered that name, apologies, uh, told the BBC on Sunday he wanted the artefacts, also known as the Elgin Marbles, returned from the British Museum to Greece. The meeting was scrapped on Monday at late notice. A Greek government source denied assurances were given to the UK. They said discussions preparing for Tuesday's meeting with the UK PM had been smooth until late afternoon on Monday, long after uh, the Greek PM's BBC interview with Laura Koonsberg on Sunday. Um, Harrison, what do you make of these Elgin, this Elgin Marbles uh, scandal and the cancellation of, of the meeting with the Greek PM? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit embarrassing, really, isn't it, Ali? Um, you know, there are a lot of very important substantive issues um, that need to be discussed between the UK and Greece. They're a European ally, they're a NATO ally, they're on the front line of, of, of the challenges of, of immigration from the Middle East, which, you know, often affect the UK um you know, very important at the moment. Uh, they often affect the UK down the line. Uh, so it's pretty well litigated. It's been litigated for a very, very long time now, literally since the Elgin Marbles have been in the UK and well, since, since at least Greece has been an independent, fully independent country, that the two countries have a, a huge difference of opinion on this. It, it That's seems, not new. It seems and like a bit... a bit of credit to Keir Starmer, I think he was right to say, it's not that difficult. You just say... We have a difference of opinion on this. We're not moving on this now. Yeah. Can we discuss the important issues that we need to discuss? Keir Stummer, to be honest, battered Rishi on this on uh, at PMQs. And I want, it seems like a bit of an overreaction from Rishi, um, which is a little bit strange. It's a weird thing to overreact on, considering you could just make the the British position clear that the Elgin Marbles aren't going anywhere and then move on to the substantive issues. Why do you think he's reacted in this way? I'm not really sure, to be honest. Uh, I, I I don't know if, if you know, I mean, to, to take them at very much face value, 
you know, had there been a long conversation beforehand that this was not to come up and the Greeks violated that position, I could see perhaps why on pure principle he might have been but offended do you, enough so by that. Do you think it's principle or is it politics? Probably something more political. Do you think it's principle or politics? Because, I mean, the, the, the allegations, some of the noise that I've heard is maybe it's a dead cat that they wanted. Um, they didn't want... Uh, some of the issues that we're going to speak about a little bit later on to, to come up, things like the COVID inquiry, things like the net migration figures, that they wanted the story to be sort of Rishi standing up for Britain as opposed to those issues. Because otherwise, it's a really, really strange thing for, for, for Rishi to do um, if it's a point of principle. Uh, I, I agree. I mean, the, the answer I just gave them was probably the most charitable interpretation <laughs> one could give. I think it's probably got something to do with giving some some culture war red meat when he spotted an opportunity for it unfortunately um, and if that is the case you know that as i've already said there are really important issues that these two countries mm -hmm. need to discuss and need to work together on and it's a, be a real shame if the reason that this meeting has been called off is because rishi sunak wants to throw a bit of red meat on the culture war yeah and so let's 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 move on to something of more a bit more substantive um and that is the story of Andrew Bailey uh having said that the outlook for the economy is the worst he's ever seen as Britain struggles to boost low levels of growth so the Bank of England governor raised concerns over the UK's future prospects just days after the home office for for the after excuse me just days after the office uh why am i struggling to get this out okay let's try this again the bank of england governor raised concerns over the uk's future prospects just days after the office for budget responsibility slashed its predictions for growth over the next two years in an interview with the chronicle in newcastle mr B bailey said if you look at if you look at what i call the potential growth rates of the economy there's no doubt it's lower than it has been in much of my working life it doesn't concern me that the supply side of the economy has slowed. It does concern me a lot. Oh, it does concern me that the supply side of the economy has slowed. It does concern me a lot. The bank, the bank's latest forecasts indicate the economy will barely grow uh, at all next year or in 2025. Uh, Harrison, what do you make of what is a pretty bleak um, sort of quotes and statement from Andrew Bailey, the governor uh, for the Bank of England? Yeah, I mean, to, to continue along the path of agreeing with people I don't often agree with, I think he's absolutely spot on on this occasion. Um, we we are seeing, and we have seen really for the last you know 15 or so years, a lost set of years of economic growth. And we are seeing a stagnant economy with a, a high and growing tax burden, nothing's getting built, and it seems that there is no willingness to address this. And Andrew Bailey is absolutely right to point it out, particularly when he notes that the supply side of the economy is completely stagnant, and that ultimately is why our growth is stagnant. And in your view, what do you think? What do you think lies behind the the stagnation of the economy and the issues surrounding growth? I mean, you spoke about taxes there. What's what are some of the underlying issues as to why the economy is in the state that it's in? I mean, obviously, well, inflation. I, mean, I, is I one think of tax them. is one of them, but I think far more important than that is the you know significant, absurdly burdensome restrictions that the government imposes on our ability to build more stuff to expand the supply of crucially things like housing and energy and we are seeing at the moment one of the biggest problems we have economically is that young people cannot get on the housing ladder young people in particular and we have a an enormous uh, well we have had an enormous supply shortage of energy over the last few years and that's partly down to the war in ukraine indeed but it's also partly due to the fact that we have an incredibly hostile environment to expanding and building new energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, until recently, you know, the, the government uh, made it incredibly difficult to explore new North Sea oil and gas. We still have an effective onshore wind band. We have MPs like Priti Patel, the most recent yesterday, talking about how her constituents want more energy, but want absolutely nothing to do with the means of getting it, which was a set of pylons that were going to be built in Essex. That's the key problem I think we face, and I think he's right to identify it. So on this energy, would it is this not surely the moment for us to to kind of be world leaders in in green energy and introducing sustainable energy, um, not just in terms of the amount of energy that it provides the country, but also the the the, the levels of employment it brings, the level of innovation it brings. Is this not a really unique opportunity for Britain to lead the world? Well, it, it depends exactly what you mean by that. I mean. You know, when it comes to the government leading the way and using taxpayers' money to support new green energy projects, I'm very suspicious about that. Just take a look at British Vault, for example, a company that was supposed to be a 
a leading innovator in electric, uh, sorry, vehicle battery technology, which the British government heavily subsidised and bailed out. And in the end, it was using technology too far, unfortunately, ahead of its time, and it went bankrupt. Didn't serve the interests of taxpayers, didn't serve the interests of the environment. Uh, what I am very keen on is lifting any and all restrictions that there are to the private sector expanding into green energy. As I say, we, you know, we've, we've had until fairly recently a de facto ban on onshore wind. We have a real problem with local objectors to building anything anywhere near their local area, uh, being able to take down uh, new infrastructure projects uh, onshore at the very least mm. in the UK for the last well, can can I ask you decades. your response to... Um, so, you know, if, if you want more wind power, I massively support new wind power. We need to take down the restrictions that are currently in front of it. Can I ask you your your so your so view on um, Labour's uh, sort of proposals, plans, promises um, on the on the area of energy? I mean, I know Rachel Reeves promised, I think it was around 20 billion. I think 28 billion was the actual number, but uh, I, could be, I could be corrected on that. But 20 billion extra funding into green energy um they've also announced i think um uh, a, a a state-backed sort of great british energy provider to, to compete with the private sector what's your view on their promises yeah i i don't think this is a particularly strong idea given what i just said about british vault as one example the government lacks the the prerequisite knowledge to understand what technologies and what innovations and crucially how they should be, how and when they should be distributed. Um, Why can't you just bring that knowledge in from the private sector? Sorry, what was that? I didn't hear Why you. can't you just bring that knowledge in from the private sector? Well, because the knowledge is not communicated in the way that you and I are communicating now. The knowledge is communicated through prices, which, and in order to have prices, you need to have secure property rights and competition between different organisations providing energy and extracting energy. You've completely lost me there. So... What we're talking about is the knowledge on how to do these things, right? Surely that knowledge is within individuals. Why it's can't not we... just about how to do these things. It's, well, it's partly about how to do these things, and that, that's a process of innovation, but it's also about how and, crucially, when to distribute energy and mm -hmm. to whom you distribute energy to. These are all incredibly complex issues, you know. Uh, I don't know what the optimal amount of energy to heat everybody's home is, I don't know what the optimal form of energy extraction is in order to do that. And that's a lot of a lot of what's underpinning that is very tacit knowledge that can only be mm -hmm. discovered through the process of competition and production between competing firms. OK, so let's move on to the, to the final story. That was really interesting. But the, the final story is what the theme of our show this week uh, is all about. And that's migration. Um, and this has been the major story uh, in the sort of political world uh, other than some marbles in Greece or not not in Greece crucially um and that's the net migration uh that net migration boosted the uk population by a record 745,000 in the year to december 2022 fueled in part by surge in overseas professionals arriving to work in the nhs and care homes and prompting a furious response from right-wing conservatives um clutching their pals that there are more foreigners in the country uh, amid signs that number 10 might consider tightening guidelines on what has been become a a, a totemic issue for some Tory MPs, one group of backbenchers said a failure to deliver on the manifesto pledge to reduce net migration could prove existential for the party. Uh, Harrison, I just want to get your view initially just on, so not the Conservative Party response or, or any politician's response, but to this report that net migration uh, is at a record number at 745,000 a year. Yeah, it's it's something that I'm comparatively relaxed about compared to you know an awful lot of the the political world. Um, I'm generally speaking very much in favour of people peacefully migrating uh, from one area to another. Uh, I think it has tremendous economic benefits, and I think each individual has uh, an inalienable right to do so. Mm -hmm. um, I can understand very much the concerns of people who have consistently voted to lower immigration and that they're not being listened to that's not my view but i can understand why that is upsetting quite a lot of people mm -hmm. but to be quite frank when you ask people do you want to reduce immigration most people will say yes but then when you ask well which professions for example should we reduce the number of visas given out to well uh, literally none of the options that are presented things like social care things like the service sector none of the options that are presented command more than 50 percent support and that's the serious conversation we need to be having. It's all good and well saying, 
well, we want to reduce the 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 overall rate of immigration. Mm-hmm. Well, what, where, and why, and what impacts is that going to have? Yeah, that's not a conversation we're having at the moment. It seems to so, be a very crude one. Basically, yeah, here's the headline figure. And I'm upset about that. And it, and it see, you know, it does seem like the politicians are leaning a little bit into the culture war element. Um, and it, it sounded, correct me if I'm wrong again, but it sounded like to me, uh, your response is a little bit more relaxed because you understand the economic situation that we're in. These net migration figures are largely, and I, I think I reported, are largely professionals uh, arriving to the UK, particularly to work in the NHS and, and care homes. And if I may just, just highlight some of, you know, where we stand with the NHS, as many people will know, just on their basic day-to-day lives, the difficulty the NHS is under, uh, the, the the waiting lists that are at record numbers, the difficulty in getting GP appointments and surgeries booked in. So I just want to give a quick headline and, get, Harrison, get your response to them. So as based on some of the basic facts and basic statistics that we get from the government and the Home Office themselves, 13.3% of the NHS staff in England are non-British nationality. 28% of them are doctors, are migrants. 20% of GPs are. 17% in social care. The staff shortage in the NHS is eye-watering. So we have 100,000 uh, sh- shortage now uh, of staff, and that could grow to 250,000. We need 5,000 more nurses this year alone just to stay afloat. 122,000 uh, in social care with an aging population. You know, how are we going to address the fa- this crisis in the NHS without the help of migration? Uh, I cannot give you an easy answer to that. And, well, in fact, I think the answer is we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but regardless of any other disagreements you and I might have about, you know, the NHS and, and the system, um, yeah. we are where we are. And there is a chronic shortage of employees while waiting this grow. We're also looking at, at the well, something I think you and, agree, you and I would agree has been disastrous, which is the... Uh, allocation of responsibility to social care with to local governments without much in the way of funding yeah. um, as a consequence of that. And we're seeing large local government authorities, Nottingham the other day, declaring effectively bankruptcy yeah. uh, in large part because they cannot fund their social and care. And by the way, you speak to anyone in local government and even within local NHS trusts and they will tell you the, the number one crisis right now is what you've speak, spoken about. That It's in social care. Exactly. And, you know, the government's now had a look at what sectors you can cut, um, you know, visas for, for example, or at least dependents um, in order to lower immigration. And it seems like they're going to have a look at social care. And I think the last thing you want to be doing right now in any of the care sectors, but especially social care, is disincentivizing the people who want to come over and do it. Because the only alternatives are a, a care worker shortage, which is mm-hmm. what we're already potentially looking at that is nightmarish or it or effectively the same thing in the form of much higher social care costs i don't think we want either of those things i don't think that's yeah. good for anybody and that's uh, this is the bit i don't get about immigration and look, i understand all the cultural elements and look i know political comms uh, better than most let's say or better than some uh, let's do better than some um but and so i get the political cost of making the argument for immigration particularly at a time like now but I don't see how we can either reduce net migration or eliminate it in, entirely without destroying the NHS, given how many migrants we have in the system that are keeping the system, if not afloat, in complete freefall. The shortages we have, I mean, I don't see how we address that. I know they will say we'll just train more British doctors, British nurses, British GPs. A, the numbers don't really support that. We don't. I mean, we have an aging crisis as it is. But also, if we did that, that would take seven years before we even begin to address the problem. So it really is a question of, you know, is reducing migration so important to you that you're willing to destroy the NHS? Well, yeah, and it's it's the, it's the economy writ large as well, I think. Um, there's been a tendency recently, I've noticed, for right-wingers to have a go at those advocating uh, a liberal position on immigration by saying, well, if, if, if immigration brings such economic benefits, why has our economy been stagnant while immigration has been at record levels? Mm-hmm. That's a, a fair question to ask, but I think it misses the point. You need to see what is unseen. What would have happened otherwise if immigration had been much lower? Immigration, I think, is you know, when you look at the evidence, one of the few things that's actually keeping our economy on fumes at the moment. Mm-hmm. And to drastically cut it, particularly in the areas that you've identified, I think would be a, a really profound misstep 
we need yeah. to address some more of the systematic issues yeah. in the long run. And that I th- doesn't necessarily yeah. mean in the short term we need to hamstring ourselves. And I, I, you, you mentioned you mentioned British doctors, for example. It would not only would it take a long time, as you already said, it, it is true to some extent because there is a cap on uh, medical places at universities. Mm-hmm. That's something we could address and stop. But that doesn't necessarily mean again cutting the short term supply of doctors and nurses. We can do both. We can invest in the long term supply without cutting the short terms. And that's the key, isn't it? Because look, I've got it here. We, uh, the, the government did introduce some measures, so five new med schools, and they've increased the medical places by to 7,500. 7, but even based on those, the way that we address the shortfall and the shortage in the NHS, we would need to triple that, and it would take at least between five to seven years before we even begin to yeah, see... Yeah, I, I, I would support lifting that cap altogether. It seems to me utterly bizarre why the, the reason there is a cap... Why is there a cap? Um, I think originally it was actually a proposal made by the British Medical Association. Mm. Um, if I were perhaps being cynical, you might take a different view of unions to me, but uh, I would say that it's probably in the interest of protecting the wages of their members at the expense of people who actually have to pay for healthcare. Taxpayers. Well, well yeah, well, Jonathan, I mean, not Jonathan, sorry, Harrison, we'd be here all day if we were to get in, <laughs> we were to get into that. But I think one of the key things that's really, really important on immigration is I, one of my calls is definitely uh, for politicians, particularly on my side of the aisle, to have the courage to actually make the case for immigration. It's links to our economy. It's links to our to our NHS uh, with a little bit of courage um, and just if nothing else, so that there is a better there is a better level of understanding within the general population around the links the, the, between immigration and our economy and our NHS. Anyway, uh, Harrison Griffiths, thank you so much. That was Harrison Griffiths, Communication Officer at the Institute uh, of Economic uh, Affairs. Joining us next, we're going to continue on this topic um, of migration uh, and not only its links to our economy, but also the impact that it has on our country. Uh, and joining me uh, after the break is Jonathan Porters, uh, Professor of Economic and Public Policy at King's College and a Senior Fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. FUBAR Radio presents As Handsome As You Imagine What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early, at yeah. like 7 o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... Welcome back. This is Ali Milani, uh, Politics Uncensored on FUBAR Radio. And we're talking uh, about migration um, and the the figures of that has just been released that their migration into the UK was a record 745,000 last year, according to the figures from the ONS. And joining me now is Jonathan Ports, um, Professor of Economic and Public Policy at King's College and a senior fellow at UK in a changing Europe. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sure. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking today about these net migration figures. Um, The surge in migration uh, has been partly fueled by a rise in overseas professionals arriving to the UK uh, in the NHS and care homes. These latest figures have caused uh, quite a lot of fury among right-wing conservatives. Uh, with some backbenchers saying the government's failure to deliver on their manifesto pledge to reduce net migration could prove existential for the party. Uh, firstly, can I just ask, from your perspective, does it sound right that these record numbers are a surge and fueled by overseas professionals arriving into the UK to work, particularly in the NHS? Um, that's one of the factors. There's quite a lot going on um, uh, in these figures. It's They include... Um, people coming from Ukraine as refugees. They include people coming from Hong Kong because of the new visa rules which we've introduced to allow people who feel that they might be um, at risk in Hong Kong um, as a result of China's actions. It includes a large increase in the number of international students compared to um, the pandemic and before. Um, And it includes um, a lot of people coming here to work, in particular, as you say, people coming here to work in the health and social care sector, as well as um, skilled workers in other sectors. So, you know, we've seen increases really across the board 
um, which have more than counterbalanced the fall in the number of people coming from Europe um, to work in um, usually in other sectors like hotels, accommodation and hospitality. Mm -hmm. I note that you're a senior fellow at the at UK in a changing Europe. Um, I know, you know, a, a lot of the noise, particularly from the Brexit sort of wing of Parliament, particularly the call has been, you know, people voted Brexit in in large part, not if not particularly on migration and reducing migration it's now going up and they feel like you know they've been betrayed or the, or their vote has been betrayed what's your response to that well um i mean i think we should be quite clear about this um there may you know there may have been some people who voted for brexit because they wanted to reduce immigration i'm sure that's true but the fact is that the official brexit campaign vote leave said that um when uh, that the consequence of Brexit would be that free movement with Europe would be ended and that the UK would introduce a new immigration system that treated people the same pretty much regardless of where they came from, but prioritised people on the basis of skills, the skills that were needed in the UK, and that those skill levels would be set by an elected British government, um, which would have control of the system. That was very clearly what the vote leave promised. Um, and that's what we've got. So we got we what Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Nigel Farage wanted. We got what they wanted. We did. I mean, this is precisely the system that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, who, you know... Well, don't Nigel let Nigel Farage, hear us. And he's, he's in a jungle somewhere right now. If he hears this, well, he's going to jump off a tree. I mean, Nigel uh, Farage sort of contra you know, said all sorts of contradictory things. But to be fair to him, he wasn't part of the official Leave campaign. Oh, of course, no, he wasn't, was he? Yeah, yeah. Whereas Boris Johnson, who is complaining about the levels of migration, actually was the person who decided that this was a system. Not only did he promise it during the referendum campaign, he was the person who actually delivered this system. Mm -hmm. He signed off on this system. He's now attempting to blame um, the economists who gave him advice on what the system should look like, some of my colleagues, but the fact is that they just gave him the advice. He was the prime minister. He took the decisions, and the decisions are what, what gave us what, what we have now. Um, so it, it's slightly odd hearing you know, Brexiteers complain about this. They wanted a system under which the U free movement ended and which where the UK parliament and government controls who comes here. And that is, that is the system we've got. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder, look, part of what we spoke about prior to, with, with the previous guest was around you know what politicians have the courage to make the case for immigration or at least educate the public a little bit more about what reducing migration or eliminating it um, in its entirety which is next to impossible but um, has been spouted uh, by many um, the realities that that would have on our country and our economy uh, they approach it from a often right wingers and far far right wingers would approach it from a cultural element but the reality is our economy or any our nhs particularly is hugely reliant on, on on migration particularly uh from from within the eu but also now outside as well uh, the home office's own migration advisory committee concluded in 2018 that there is no doubt that migrants contribute more than they consume in healthcare. Uh, that Migration Advisory Committee found that rather than migrants substituting for homegrown talent, there is evidence of complementaries between skilled migrants and skilled residential workers. What's your, what's your view in, in the way that migration is discussed in, in Westminster? Um, I think it's, it's pretty dreadful, frankly. Um, so, and, and again, you need to look at sort of different categories of migrants. So for, for most skilled migrants, there is often, you know, uh, um, I think as the MAC said, as you just quoted, there's quite a lot of evidence that migration is complementary to people already here. Um, certainly, I see that in my own professional life. Having um, academics from around the world is good for me. It doesn't drive down my wages or, or reduce okay. my job opportunities. It makes my university more productive and more successful. And of course, uh, the UK higher education system is a very successful part of the economy, generating a lot of exports and various other spin-offs. Um, on the NHS and in particular social care, I do think it is more somewhat more complicated and somewhat different. The NHS, of course, has always relied to some extent on migrant workers who contribute a huge amount. The 
very large numbers of people coming to work in the care sector in the last couple of years in particular, though, I do think there is an issue here. It's not primarily a migration issue. It's a workforce issue. The fact is that we are underfunding our social care sector. We are underpaying people in this sector um, and we are treating them pretty badly. And mm -hmm. as a consequence, lots of people are leaving, um, are leaving the social care sector. Yeah. There's a high level of vacancies. 122,000 is, is the number. 122,000 vacancies right. in social care. Um, and the government has decided to respond to that by, by saying, well, we're going to loosen, instead of paying people properly and training them properly and trying to keep them in the profession or attract them into the social care profession, we'd rather have migrants come in. And actually, while I think broadly migration is a very good thing for the economy um i and others do actually think that this strategy is misplaced over the long run that is not to say the answer is to reduce you know to, to tighten up migration but surely we can do both right surely we can pay people the wages that, that they should be paid that gives them security to do the job and also have the migration numbers to to support plugging the gap of 122,000 while also paying them the wages that they deserve that, that, that's pretty that's easy right. yeah? and you know over time you could reduce the need for migration in the sector if you had a proper pay and workforce strategy what i think is quite ironic is that you know the government is actually saying to private sector firms say for example to to you know bars or restaurants or cafes in london who find it difficult to recruit staff you know well that's your problem um you know you should uh, pay them better train them more improve productivity or whatever um at the same time so it's saying that to small businesses at the same time it's saying to uh you know when it comes to the government's own pay and workforce as in health and social care the government's saying oh no we don't want to pay pro people properly we don't want to make them stay in the profession we'd actually um you know uh, uh um, migration is okay there um mm -hmm. so i think there's a there's a contradiction here in the way the government uh, um, is acting because it's simply unwilling to face the trade-offs that come um, with actually funding our public services properly and paying people properly. So uh, what I want to also ask you is around the sort of political elements of this. There is a huge amount of backlash from mainly backbenchers on the right wing of the Conservative Party. There's been discussions around, you know, the keenness of the Tories to kind of call an election, if not on the boats, stopping the boats, but in the area of migration and immigration, what do you think the likelihood, uh, what the sort of outcome and the, the the backlash will be to these numbers for the Tories? I mean, are they toast anyway? I mean, you know, uh, uh, I'm not a political analyst, but my sense is, um, although, you know, if you add, in general, what we do know from public opinion is that, well, most people, although a diminishing number, do want migration to come down. They're also generally in favour of um, relatively liberal migration rules on the workers we need, people in the healthcare sector, people in the social care sector, and so on. You know, if you and they're also relatively relaxed about students coming here to study and so mm -hmm. on. So the public opinion, while it may sort of have a general um, attitude that migration is too high is also broadly in favor of most of the categories we currently have yeah. now. Can, can I ask you, um, sorry, I was just going to interrupt because this this bothers me. The, the, the public attitudes and public opinion that we so often speak about, my last guest spoke about it and we're talking about it now, there, there seems to be, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but there seems to be, certainly in the political world, they kind of throw up their hands and go, well, the public want to reduce immigration and that's what they want and that's what they believe in. If you ask most people, they'll say, yeah, my, migration numbers and immigration numbers should go down. Without recognizing that, well, maybe the reason that that is, is because no one is making the case for immigration, the benefits that it brings the country economically, culturally, the people, the the, the moral case for immigration, particularly in places like Ukraine uh, and Syria and Gaza now. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, is it sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because no one has the courage to talk about migration in any sort of positive way. That we end up in this loop where yes most people want migration to come down but that's because all they ever hear is the same sort of line of arguments um, i think that's partly true but i think you know on the positive side migration attitudes towards migration in this country have become significantly more positive over the past decade the uk is now one has the public here is more liberal than in almost any other european country um so 
you know, we should not assume that the public is sort of uniformly anti-migration. That's simply not true. The public, like as on many issues, and as, as many of us do, has views which are on often conflicting. Um, so I think it's not so much that I would criticize politicians on and the media on mass for being uniformly negative about migration, although that's obviously true of some of them. Hmm. What I don't think, um, what we lack is um, any, you know, is, is enough of debate around the sort of the trade-offs, the conflicts that are inherent, you know, in migration policy as with any other aspect of economic policy. Um, so, you know. What are those trade-offs? Yes. So, so rather than saying, you know, uh, um, would uh, you know, would you like to see migration come down? It would be better if politicians actually went and said, well, you know, would you like to pay higher taxes so that we can fund the social care sector better and treat people in that sector better, retain more workers, um, which might, as one of the consequences might be to reduce migration over time. That's an actually a sort of honest question. Um, that reflects that actually policy is complicated and things are po are complicated. Um, you don't get much of that uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, well, quality of debate isn't something that I think our politics uh, particularly uh, does well. Um, but thank you. That's very interesting. That's Jonathan uh, Ports, Professor of Economic and Public Policy at King's College and a senior fellow at UK uh, in a changing Europe. Uh, in a bit, we're going to be joined by Zach Polensky, Deputy Leader of the Green Party of England uh, and Wales. Uh, but before that, we've got a message. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We have the absolute icon, mm -hmm. legend, Janice Dickinson. I'm here. Do you still enjoy doing reality shows or do you now see it as more of like a part of your job that you like have to do? I do, I do really enjoy it. I don't, I don't enjoy the actuality of, of eating fish eyeballs. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that side to Or goat's or vagina of cow. Yeah. But you do like the but sort of social I, side, do you? Like just the... The social know. side was fantastic. Just getting to know people mm. and uh, sleeping with people and eating with people when we didn't really have enough food. Politics Uncensored. This week, we have Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behaviour they display both in office and in ministerial office, no? Absolutely. 100. We're an embarrassment. Yeah. You no. know, we're we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders. But now with the people we have in charge, we can't even lead ourselves. Well, we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns. The dating show. Please do. Back in the day when it used to be like fashionable or uh, it was it was the thing to do when you'd go on Facebook. Yeah. And you'd be like, oh, I'm like in a relationship. What was the other one? It was um, it's complicated. Do you remember that one? Yeah, it's uh, in a relationship with. Yeah. Or it's, it's complicated. complicated. But then what you used to do, you used to pop up on the feed. So you'd be sitting there. Yeah. Uh, and then in your feed, it would be. Um, I don't know, Jess, whoever is now single, so you like that one, or do, poke them. Did you poke them? And then you give you them a little poke. poke. Yeah. yeah. Give a little virtual poke. Yeah. Um, just to go, I see you're single now, babe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, oh, Facebook were great, weren't it? You're listening to Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. Foobar Radio. This is Ali Milani back on Fubar Radio with Politics Uncensored. You know, I was just listening to that ad and they were talking about um, uh, Facebook uh, relationship statuses. Now, I'm not 65 years old, so I stopped using Facebook a, a while ago. Um, but I really did connect with that, but not in terms of relationships, but political status. When people ask me, you know, what, what side of the political aisle you're on, whereas one you used to be in a relationship, it's now very complicated. So um, I think... I, I, that's that's something many of us in politics uh, feel, particularly with with where the main political parties have gone and continue to go. Um, and we're, we're talking about that today, actually, with the release of the net migration figures into the UK, which showed that 745,000, um, that the net migration figures were at a record with 745,000 last year, according figures to the ONS. Um, and this surge in migration has been partly fueled by a rise in overseas professionals arriving to the UK uh, to work, particularly in the NHS um, and in social care and naturally because our politicians are just so shit uh, there has been a clutching of the pearls and and a, a 
uh, outrage, faux outrage, and 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 uh, disappointment and anger at these net migration figures. The fact that they're a record, um, particularly given so much of the Brexit campaign was fought on immigration lines, and you know, I have been saying this for a really, really long time. And that's on the issue of immigration. If everybody is too scared to talk about migration in sensible, positive ways, then what we get is Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Doris and that standard of politician who only see migration and immigration through this political lens of what they can do um, to to essentially win votes and and stoke fear and the sort of fear campaign around migration. And so what happens is net migration figures like this come out uh, and politicians pretend to be outraged and try and lean on um, the the hostilities or suspicions or anxieties of our communities around immigration. And everyone, the sort of liberal side of the politics, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, or if you consider them liberals, throw their hands up and say, well, we can't really say anything because we want to maintain ourselves within public opinion. And the majority of the public do want to see immigration come down. So, you know, it would be political suicide for us to uh, come out and make the case for migration and say immigration is a good thing for our country. Well, the reality is the reason that those opinions are the way that they are, the reason that the public uh, largely or even a majority uh, believe that migration should go down and immigration should go down is because no one has had the basic political courage to make the positive case for immigration in this country since 2008. And I just want to use the NHS as an, as an example that we've spoken about. 13.3% of the NHS staff in England are non-British nationals. 28.4% of our doctors are migrants. 20% of our GPs are migrants. 17% in social care our migrants. The staff shortage in the NHS right now is a hundred thousand people. That could grow to two hundred and fifty thousand. We need five thousand more nurses this year alone just to stay afloat. A hundred and twenty-two thousand shortage in social care. And where does that largely come from? That is being plugged through migration, through migrants in the NHS who are keeping it afloat. So while all these politicians are clutching their pearls at migration and telling you how bad migrants are and driving these culture wars around reducing migration and stopping the boats and stopping people coming here, what they don't tell you is without migrants, the NHS would collapse in its entirety if it's not already doing so. 4, people, 4 million people waiting on waiting lists, people not getting the surgeries they need, not being able to see a GP. And what they want to do for their own political benefit is unplug basically the people that are holding the systems together and as i'm saying this i can hear the sort of right-wing cries of we'll just train more british doctors and we'll train more british nurses and we'll train more british people in social care yes we need to do that right we need to do that of course we need to do that but there's two things one there is nothing contradictory between bringing migrants in and training people british people here to become doctors and nurses in fact the research has shown that migration and immigration increases educational attainment for natives and people who live here, students who are already here. Uh, you can see research done by a person called Jennifer Hunt. The Migration Advisory Committee found that rather than migrants substituting for homegrown talent, there is evidence of complementaries between skilled migrants and skilled residential workers. Research from NIESR has supported this. And whether we want to admit it or not, we have an aging population in the UK. 29% of England and Wales are under the age of 25, right? That's only 29% uh, who would be going into university to train as doctors, particularly. Now, you can go later in life, but that's the, the majority of people come under the age of 25. Our aging population means people over the age of 65 will reach 26% by 2060, right? And there's 7,500 7, med school places. In order for us to meet the shortage numbers that I spoke about earlier, we would not only need to triple the places available in med schools but we would have to manufacture more young people which is impossible right unless we're in the matrix and there's a there's a there's there's a lab somewhere that we're growing 18 year olds it's not possible so when they're talking about reducing migration or getting rid of migrants in their country what they're talking about is collapsing the nhs in its entirety that's just a fact of life you can't ignore it you can't run away from it that is just the reality of where we are and joining us now, we have Zach Polensky, Deputy Leader of the Green Party for England uh, and Wales. Uh, and we're going to continue this discussion um, on 
the figures from the ONS, um, the Office, Office for National Statistics on migration. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you can hear me okay. What is your reaction to, uh, first, this report that net migration into the UK was at a record 745,000 last year? And then I also want to get your response to the outrage from the Conservative right. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I think ultimately what we really need is positive voices about migration that talk about the contribution that migrants uh, make both to society right now, but also previously in history. Now, of course, that's complicated because it's tied in with empire and colonialism, but we are where we are at this point. And I think we need to make sure that we're celebrating and not just talking about the trauma of migrants' history. I think in terms of pure economic terms, it's clear that we need more migration to keep things running like our NHS and social care. But also I'm really think the attractive arguments are the humanitarian arguments, that ultimately when you think about what kind of country do we want to be, we can be little Britain or little England that, that doesn't want to include anyone else, or we can want to be a beautiful, generous country that is inclusive of people. Now, the conservative arguments, and I would say uh, Keir Starmer often appeals to these arguments too, are about lack of housing or the um, uh, lack of service in the NHS, and of course these things are problems. But the problems here are not migrants, the problems here are 13 years of austerity, and ultimately, we need leadership and people to be making those arguments. And that leadership is so often missing, both from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And it's needed now more than ever before. And I'm proud that the Green Party are there saying those things. Well, I'm glad you said that. I, I don't know if you heard before you came on, but I was on a bit of a rant, essentially saying the same thing in terms of leadership on the issue of migration. And I'm glad to hear uh, a UK politician make the positive case uh, for migration. Why do you think your colleagues particularly look we, we know the conservatives and the tories some of them will have ideological position on this some of it is just pure racism um but why do you think your let's call them liberal colleagues within the center and the center left the sort of liberal democrats and labor are so shit scared of talking about immigration um, i missed your rant i'm afraid i'm actually out door knocking but um I will yeah, listen back to it it's time. probably a blessing um, that. i think racism <laughs> I think racism is a big part of it, and I know you kind of skirted over it there, and I'll talk about the other issues, but I think it is important to call out that racism does exist in society, it exists systemically, it exists within our institutions, and ultimately, if we just accept that and say we've got to look at other things, we're not tackling that full on. So I think whenever you talk about the migration conversation or conversations about asylum seekers, we need to look at the fact that Britain opened its arms to Ukrainian refugees, and that's right. We right to do that, not knocking that for a second, but you rarely see that same love and support given to Syrians or people from Yemen. And I think it's really important that we notice that the skin color is different and that's a vital part of this conversation. Can I just ask you on this racism element, right. Zach, can I ask you on this racism element? Yeah. People always just go, okay, well, the race, you know, that's the conservatives. Do you think that racism element also exists within the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party as well? Without a doubt. I think racism exists throughout society. So I think it exists in any party and should always be challenged. I don't think it's good enough to just not be racist i think we have to be actively anti-racist but do you but do you think that's do you yeah. also think that that's influencing the way that they talk about migration and immigration yeah i think it is i think part of it is explicit racism but i think the much bigger part um is exactly kind of where we started off is the lack of housing and an nhs that's on its knees but as we know these are not the problems of migrants but when you don't have political leaders saying that and in fact you have them saying the opposite that we've got to control numbers that we've got to stop the boats that we've got to reduce my, uh, immigration when you hear all of these whether it's dog whistles or explicit racism of course that all contributes to a society where people are left not feeling welcome and you know that was very very present during the brexit debate as well it was just this this uh, madness that we thought that or some people thought that brexit meant people wouldn't want to live here study here work here and yes seek asylum here that's not how a modern economy works and in the, the modern world, people do want to travel, and that includes British people too. And ultimately, we need a much better system, but that system has to include being generous and supportive to those who, who, who aren't the same as you, but are ultimately human beings. Yeah, and so I just want to, lastly, before we move on on this topic, you know, you are on the show making the positive case for immigration, uh, and there are other others in politics, in the Labour Party, in the Liberal Democrats, and even some in the Conservative Party who, who, who do try to make this case. But it is a small island that you're on. How disappointing is it that so much, the vast of the establishment of our politics, actually agree on migration, uh, if not on the issue of reducing migration? The only really thing that they disagree on is the scale of reducing migration. How disappointing is the culture of discussions around this area in Westminster? It's phenomenally um, disappointing, and I'd say it's more than disappointing. It's 
it's disgusting. I was on a panel yesterday with Labour MP Sarah Jones, who's the MP for Croydon, and we were asked this exact question about immigration. And her first thing to say was that immigration was too high. Nothing about the fact that we need more immigration within the NHS, nothing about the fact that lots of these migrants are students anyway, and they're contributing to our society. It was just straight down peeled to the most base instincts of us. And we're hearing that from both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So I'm not ending on a note of despair, though. I do think the majority of the country are in a different place, whether it's just live or let live, or people who actively want to celebrate um, the benefits of multiculturalism and the benefits of contributions, whether it's their friends, family, neighbours, colleagues. I think that's where most people are. And I think you wouldn't know that looking at mainstream media, because uh, particularly the Daily Mail, but other media organisations constantly spew out these hate stories and these divisive stories. But I don't think that's who we are. And I think when politicians can reach out to the heart and to compassion and appeal to people's better nature, I think that will always win in the end. Uh, yes. And, and you know, I was, I, I was just thinking about what you said about the Labour MP who said it's too high. I don't never really understand what too high means. Um, and and as if there is a magic number, like net migration should be X, and if it's one or two above that, then that's too high, and it has to be an exact number that's not rooted in any sort of sociological science or anything like that. I, I, I want to move on quickly, just while I've got you. You're obviously the deputy leader of the Green Party, and I'd be amiss if I didn't speak about the impacts of climate change with migration. All the studies, all the science uh, suggests that there's going to be an increasing issue over the next generation and as we deal with the impacts of climate change migration around the world is likely to increase uh, how important is it that our discussions and conversations around immigration go hand in hand with action on climate change yeah this is really important because obviously climate change is going to play a huge uh, huge role in this now um, sometimes people talk about this as something that's happening in the future but we know this is happening right now and there's places in the global south that are increasingly uninhabitable we've seen a third of pakistan ultimately we need to mitigate those emissions absolutely and we need to help countries to adapt and cop 28 has just started and there's a really important conversation to happen around loss and damage particularly yeah. because the countries who are least resilient to tackle the climate crisis are the ones who are facing the worst effects and they're the ones uh uh, you know, who have done least to deserve is the wrong word, but least to deserve it or least to um, to, to contribute yeah. to it. So we've absolutely got to play our ensure we're protecting those people. But ultimately, we have reached a point when no matter how much we mitigate our emissions, a lot of damage has already been done. And so, yes, migration is going to play a part of this. And also, it's impossible to talk about this without talking about what's going on in Gaza. Now, I'm not supportive necessarily of jumping straight away to a conversation about refugees with Palestinians because ultimately they have uh, Netanyahu's far-right government to push into conversations about ethnic cleansing, ultimately pushing an entire population out of the country. But it is necessary, necessarily going to play a role in all conflicts, but ultimately we've got to find ways both of resolving the conflict, not letting violence mm -hmm. create more violence, and as a very last resort, also making sure that we're creating safe routes to make sure that people are welcome here too. Yeah, I've got one last question for you, but what I want to make clear to our listeners is that when we're talking about the impacts of climate change and refugees, some might be, you know, wondering what we're talking about and and and, and zach very clearly mentioned pakistan and the, the point is climate change isn't a, f a future problem it's a now problem there are areas of pakistan that are far that are, have become uninhabitable for human beings there are areas all around the world from forest fires uh, to adverse weather conditions to heat um, which cause populations to move because they can't physically live there and those populations have to go somewhere and that is likely to increase over over the coming years and that is where refugees and migrants uh, climate refugees are going to become an increasing issue zach lastly you mentioned cop 28 i want to talk to you about cop 28 um i want to ask you two questions your reaction first to cop 28 taking place in dubai and your reaction to the reports that the uk has taken three private planes to the conference you couldn't make this up yeah, this is, this is pretty wild. Look, so the world's richest 1% are ultimately burning double the emissions of humanity's bottom 50%. So there is a huge issue in our society and in our globe, but particularly in the UK, but around the world as well, of climate inequality. Um, and that's one reason why in the UK, I'm always advocating for a wealth tax, make sure we're making those with wealth uh, be taxed more. And of course, that's something that both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have consistently refused to do. But also, Private jets are the pinnacle of climate injustice. The idea that someone could travel around in a private jet with all the space that requires, the air pollution and the emissions, flying above, mocking those in poverty beneath them, is pretty egregious indeed. 
But that can be done by some of our senior politicians and also indeed not our politicians, but our unelected monarchs demonstrate the mass inequality that exists both in our society and around the world, but that's very much reflected in UK society. Now, COP28, or COP indeed, is something that does need to succeed. This is a democratic process that we need to support as much as we can to make sure that there are better concessions that we move forward to the future. But there will reach a point where it just is no longer tenable. And actually you look at it and you go, this is not achieving the uh, degree of change that we need at the urgency we, we require. But at the moment, we don't have much choice to support it. I think we've got to make sure that we're working around the process about how can we tighten it up? How can we make sure that it's transparent and make sure ultimately that climate criminals aren't getting away with, with what they're doing? Yeah, and I'm going to squeeze one last question in, Zach, before I let you go go back. Um, I presume you're knocking on doors. Um, and that is, we have a segment on our show, it's called Word on the Street, where we, we send our, our wonderful reporter, Caitlin Yardley, onto the streets of central London to ask people questions uh, of the day. And the question this week was around the first transatlantic, transatlantic flight using 100% sustainable jet fuel, uh, which took off uh, on Tuesday. What's your response to that? Um, it's completely nonsense. I mean, I, I hesitate to even say sustainable aviation fuel because ultimately it is just not sustainable. Uh, there's lots of uh, reasons why it's not. I think one of the key reasons if we're, if we're running out of time is ultimately if you're producing waste to then power jets, you're ultimately still giving into the growth agenda and you're growing and growing to have more and more flights. And that is not sustainable in itself. Ultimately, we've got to be realistic about the fact that we only have one planet, we have limited resources and we have mass inequality. This isn't saying that people shouldn't be able to fly, you know, on their family holiday once a year. That absolutely can and will happen. But we should be looking at things like a frequent flyer levy. So every time that someone flies, it gets more expensive each time they go. We need to be pulling back on things like air miles, because ultimately that's incentivizing people to take flights, which is exactly the wrong way around. And we need to reverse that situation. But I think more than anything is the fact that we're subsidizing aviation rather than domestic trains. And particularly with domestic aviation, it's an absolutely outrageous situation where it's often cheaper to fly from somewhere like Edinburgh to London than it is to get a train from But Edinburgh Zach, how else is Rishi Sunak supposed to get to Scotland, mate, if it's not by private jet? He's, well, he's, mean, he Zach, he's used to a certain standard of lifestyle, right? And we have to maintain um, that, right? <laughs> I mean, I think if you're prime minister, you should probably get used to another standard of the lifestyle. I don't, I'd never buy the argument that someone will only... Uh, want to be prime minister if it comes with all the perks of, of being a business person or a CEO. Ultimately, you are still a public servant. You just happen to be the most powerful public servant in the country. And okay. I think he could uh, he could send a signal by uh, getting on a commercial aircraft. Now, I know people instantly jump to security, but there is nothing to say he can't have security on that commercial aircraft. That That is not an issue, and plenty of important and famous people do that. The idea that he has to fly in a private jet is for the birds. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. That was Zach Polanski, Deputy Leader of the Green Party uh, for England uh, and Wales, talking to us about COP28, ONS, um, migration, and and, uh, and many, many other things. Um, uh, despite the fact that he kind of He've kind of ruined our word on the street, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna continue that, um, largely because I, I you know I'm really interested around what people have to say uh, around this first transatlantic flight, which is used 100% sustainable for jet fuel. Um, now, I I, to be honest, I think what Zach was talking about was more air miles and reducing flights as a whole. I think it's obviously preferable if uh, if there are going to be transatlantic flights that they use 100% sustainable jet fuel, as was the case with the one that took off. Uh, on Tuesday. Uh, so our word in the street this week, as I mentioned earlier, was our politics reporter, Caitlin Yardley, headed onto the streets of central London to find out what people think on this issue. And our question was specifically, the first transatlantic flight using 100% sustainable jet fuel took off on Tuesday. Would you travel in a plane fueled by cooking oil? Yes, if it was safe and it had been tested and everything, then yeah. Absolutely, I would. I mean, they, they made cars run on like pure alcohol, so why not cooking oil on planes? Probably not. I don't know anything about, you know, in the environmental aspects, but it just doesn't sound safe. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I would. If they can do it, why not? Absolutely. As simple as that. I used to work for Virgin Atlantic, so okay. yeah. It's the way forward, I think, isn't it? Most definitely. Um, it sounds like a great way to, to help the environment where we can, and I'm all for that. Oh, why not? I mean, like, you know, it'd be pretty cool, like, you know, for the experience, so... I think I would go on any flight that was run by any sort of sustainable energy, I think. 
as long as you're getting from A to B, anything that then is more sustainable is a bonus. I don't know. I might not. I'll wait a bit and see what happens. Yeah, probably. Fuel is fuel. It doesn't really make a difference how they're powering it as long as it stays in the air. That works for me. I love that penultimate woman who was like, I don't know, let's let a couple of them take off and see if they land and then I might think about getting on it. Uh, listen, it's been a brilliant show. Um, as we approach uh, our Christmas break, uh, I want to thank all of our guests for joining us. Jonathan Portis uh, from King's uh, College, Zach Polensky, Deputy Leader of the Green Party, and Harrison Griffiths, who joined me for the week unwrapped, who is Communications Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Really important topic uh, discussing as we go into a new year, which will be an election year. Thank you so much for joining me. I have been Ali Milani. You can follow us on social media at Fubar Radio. Salams.